Hey everybody, thanks for listening to the Fanzine Podcast. Just before we get started with the show, this is your host, Tony Fletcher. I want to invite you to sign up for the weekly newsletter over at tonyfletcher.substack.com. It'll give you updates on this podcast, my other podcast, all forms of recommendations with a midweek update, a long-form weekend read. Sign up is absolutely free. There are interview archives, uh, additional podcast features, and you will be able to to see uh, more of the fanzines that uh, we're talking about on this show. That's tonyfletcher.substack.com. Thanks again. Now on with the pod. It's the jamming fanzine. Fanzine. Podcast. I mean, the thing about a fanzine was holding it in your hand, right? And looking at the way it had been put together and the punk way it had been put together, quite quite frankly. And it had a staple in it, you know, and and that was that is a fanzine, right? Greetings one and all and welcome to the Jamming Fanzine Podcast or just if you prefer the Fanzine Podcast, that's fine by me. My name is Tony Fletcher and back when I ran a fanzine called Jamming, it was common for people to just go by a last name initial. Mark Perry, I guess, started this off when he originated the punk fanzine Sniffing Glue and went by the name of Mark P. And one reason I never really chose to go by Tony F, although a few people did call me that, is because the next big punk fanzine after Sniffing Glue was Ripped and Torn, which was edited and published by Tony D. And Tony D may have uh, may have uh, shortened his name as a result of the influence of Sniffing Glue. His full name is Tony Drayton, and Ripton Torn became a prominent, if not the prominent, punk fanzine, especially in Sniffing Glue's wake from late 1977 onwards. So it is my pleasure, and indeed I think it's important that we host and have Tony D on this show. And I am going to have us jump right on into the interview because it was also the nature of fanzines to do that, to very often uh, do away with the kind of like critical over-analysis uh, within an interview format and just provide a Q&A. Not because fanzine editors had nothing to say, as you will find out when I read some excerpts from Rips and Torn back at Tony D, but because fanzines really with the interview process just wanted to let the conversation flow. So you're going to get a largely what and all conversation between myself and Tony D. It's always been my intention to keep any podcast I do under an hour long. However, Tony and I talked for like an hour and 20 minutes and I was only able to make minimal cuts. Uh, One advantage of podcasts, unlike printed paper, is that uh, there's no cost for running it long. I just hope you'll uh, you'll understand why once you start listening. And uh, also true of fanzines, we were amateurs to the end, uh, well known for showing up to do interviews in noisy pub environments so you could never transcribe them successfully, coming out without batteries uh, or, or plugs or not being able to find plugs in noisy pubs where the batteries promptly ran out. And uh, true to form, 
Uh, I've had to work a little bit with the sound on this particular show. I'll spare you the details. I will say that the uh, that fanzine ethic never seems to die. So, um, you know, have fun with that as well. Uh, I'll come back at the end to just uh, see if there's a couple of things that I might want to fill you in on in case they weren't totally clear during the interview. Because, uh, like I say, yeah, I'm not to, intending to repeat myself, but Ripton Torn, super important. Tony D, uh, super important. I had another fanzine beyond called Kill Your Pet Puppy, also important. And this is but the first of, uh, well, I hope to be at least a couple of conversations with Tony about his input and influence within the fanzine culture. A little uh, warning, there is some swearing in this show uh, in terms of reading extracts. Uh, so be aware of that. There is an explicit label on the show. Um, and I bleeped out, uh, or partly bleeped out, one word that I'm always hesitant to use in the, in the modern day because I think it has sexist overtones. Hasn't stopped many groups from doing it. A lot of people think it's okay. Um, but whatever. Uh, I have bleeped it out. I'm going to leave it there. I want to welcome you on board. It's the Fanzine Podcast with Tony D and, at least just for today, Tony F. Welcome, to, uh, Tony D, Tony Drayton. How are you today? And as much as anything, where are you? Well, hello, Tony. I'm actually in London, uh, on the outskirts, or Leytonstone, which is East London. Yeah, uh, Leytonstone, Leighton Orient. Not an area I ever knew well. The East End, not so well. Uh, how long have you, How long have you been there? And what's What's like the whole of London has become so gentrified over the years? What's Leytonstone like these days? We've we've, we've been um... We had our fair share of gentrification of Costa Coffees and Cafe Nero's and all this. And, of course, the big gentrification here, since I moved here 20 years ago, was the Olympics sprung up to two miles away in Stratford. And that, of course, changed the area dramatically. From what was used to come out on the central line and go through this kind of derelict wasteland before you got to Leighton, Leightonstone, it's suddenly now all become, that's the big swish part of the uh, the tube line. But then, and, I, I, like... And you're saying you've, you've never been out this way, you're not used to this way. I think everyone used to go past Leytonstone on the way to see Crass. The only reason you'd come this far out was to go all the way out to see Crass. I went, I took that route to see Crass. I talked about it, uh, I think two episodes back with, uh, with, uh, well, I think I've talked about it on both episodes we've done of the new season. Crass was so important in the punk scene in the fanzine scene i think almost every single fanzine made that journey at, at one point in their lives out to uh north weald or something and then all the That's, way out to dial house right yeah there used to be a second line didn't there? you get to epping there was more stations stations beyond epping north that's right weald. that's right you jump a track you, you get on another train that went like three stops or something very something strange big, yeah yeah and then you called crass from a payphone <laughs> and, they, and, they, and instead of coming to get you, they would tell you where to walk. I mean, it's just classic. Oh, that was, was the early days. They used to come and collect me. Oh, well, they made got, me walk. So that. So, so that that will actually that will actually bring us into our pecking order very quickly. If anybody who doesn't know and actually hasn't looked at the or seen what this episode's called, Tony uh, Drayton is your last name, but you were known as Tony D. You were editor publisher of Ripped and Torn. And later, kill your pet puppy. And I'm going to say from the beginning that uh, for all for all that sniffing glue, which I know is really important to your story, for all that sniffing glue set the scene, I have always, and I know I'm not alone, looked on Ripton Torn as being the quintessential 
punk fanzine. Not not archetype, but I think I think you kind of set the archetype. It was quintessential. It was influential. It was popular. It it uh, it mattered, and uh, for that reason, you know, people know the name Tony D. Now. I went off and started the fanzine, and interestingly, our paths crossed many a time, but we, until last weekend, this time last weekend, when you said, can we have an advance call, I want to let listeners know, we have never spoken actually in person until a week ago, correct, 2023? Incredible, isn't it? Yeah, we've paths crossed, crisscrossed across London and never actually stopped and spoke to each other. I know. And the first thing that happened last week, apart from the fact that we got on really, really well, which is reassuring because in in, uh, in, our, in our younger days, all of us were very feisty and uh, or feisty, however you want to pronounce it. And we, we were all protecting our corners. So apart from the fact we got on very well, uh, I, I, maybe people have heard you in another podcast. I had not. I'd never spoken to you. I was immediately, but I thought you were Scottish. And that's not a heavy Scottish accent. So your, your background, because you, you, you put Ripped and Torn together in Glasgow. Were you English? To, were you born in England? Were you born in Glasgow with an English accent? Um, okay, I was, I was actually born in London, born in South London, which is strange. I've never, since I moved back to London in 77, I've never lived in the South London. But I was actually born in South London. My parents moved out to Clacton. So my dad got a job in Butlins, working at Butlins. And so we went to the, Clacton, the Butlins at Clacton, which was good in the way because I saw the mods and rockers. I got I got first-hand experience as, as a young boy, very young boy, seeing all the mods and rockers on the seafront. And that was exciting times. I used to play mods and rockers in the playground. <laughs> really? <laughs> as a mod, to go back to that. I was, my, I was a mod, a four-year-old mod, a five-year-old mod. Then then from there, we went, my dad got promoted to the, the Ayrshire branch of Butlins. So we decamped from just when music was kicking in, probably 1966. Um, the, the, you know, the Summer of Love. Even in Clacton, you could get a taste of the Summer of Love with the Mods and Rockers. We're so dumped in this fishing village because the, the Butlins was in the middle of nowhere. And then as the nearest school had 72 people in the whole school. And they were all from this fishing village, all the farms, the farms around them. There was no one, no one, we were like aliens from another planet. Me and my, my brother and two sisters just dropped in there. And like the accent, that was the other way around. It's like we had this presumably Cockney accent, Cockney South. East Essex and Essex with Cockney accents, and these people are all hard, brogue, Scottish farmer, fisherman dialects, even in the kids. And uh, we're both fascinated, each side was fascinated by each other, but they, they had no music. There's no sense of the Beatles or the, you know, psychedelia or anything like that happening down there. And so I was ripped away from all that. Then we moved into Falkirk, or outside Falkirk called Polmont. Like my dad left Butlins, and we went to this place. And there, I started getting into, it supposed me back into culture. I got into football, it was in 1969, so I saw my first football match, Falkirk versus Clyde, and I became a, a lifelong Falkirk fan. It's actually sparked me off. Uh, we saw the football, uh, started getting into this, play Clockwork orange stuff around that time, as films were coming out. Um, but I wasn't interested in music at that point. Then we moved to Cumbernauld, which is near Glasgow, and it was there that, I say it's there that I created Ripped and Torn in 1976. So how old how old were you in 1976, Tony? I was I was 18 then. I'd left school at 16 in uh, 1974. That was the suite had a single, the 16s in 1974. I just left school and that single came out, and it was like my anthem. Yeah, well, I'd, I'd got into music again. I got into glam rock at that point in 70, 73, 74, and 
and so the two years I was in and out of work, and I did the first Ripton Torn. Um, so do you want to hear about this? This why yeah. I started Ripton Torn. Yeah, I'd love to hear. But can you tell me? Can you tell me first? I mean, what was I think set the scene for people? So you're obviously a little bit older than some of us. Uh, well, you're older than me. Sorry, got to say that you're, you're a little bit older than me by by a few years. Uh, what you know, you left school at sixteen. That's not uncommon. I, I got to say that for any younger listeners, that was the norm. I left school at sixteen in London several years later than you. What was what was the world like in Glasgow in '76? How rough was it? Uh, what was the music scene? Just give me a, a sense before punk hit you, what you were dealing with. Right. What the big music for me was the Saturday night disco in Cumbernauld, where Peter Frampton's Show Me the Way. I remember that when he blows to that pipe. Yeah. Um, I, don't, I can't explain it musically, but I'm sure people know it. But he, he speaks to his like pipe. A voice box, yeah. That was huge. That, that was the kind of stuff that was seen as cutting edge. This is. Um, that, that was that was I think rather than go to see bands, we sort of went to this disco, and that was kind of a meetup. Yeah. And after after that, I started going to a little pub called Burns House, which had rock bands. After the fire, I think played there. A, it was like free by a pint, see a band, just because I could get out and see bands. I just discovered this place I can see live music. And then after that, I started going to the Apollo. As this point, this point, I was working at the advertising agency Peter Menzies. And we did the Apollo. We had the Apollo account. Which yeah. meant I, was going to, I was going to the Apollo, which is which is the main concert hall in Glasgow. Because I live in Cumbernauld, but it's a half an hour commute to Glasgow now. So, so because of that, to go back to one of your questions, I didn't really see much of the, the nighttime culture in, in Glasgow, apart from the Burns House, um, because I was living in Cumbernauld. So all, all this kind of idea of roughness and the, and the gorbals and all that, and I knew nothing. I, knew, I know nothing really about all that side of it. And Were again, you... being, oh, sorry. No, no. I mean, Karen, I wanted to ask her, were you, uh, were you long-haired? Were you short-haired? Were you into anything from New York? Were you waiting for punk? Were you one of those teenagers who, when you heard about punk, said, oh, my God, this is what I've been waiting for? Yes, 100%. On that, on that train ride, in the half-hour train ride, I used to buy the music papers regularly, and it was in there. You know, I used to read The Enemy, The Sounds, uh, Disc, I think. I used to love Disc as well. Uh, I'd read all those avidly, and of course, in there was all the beginnings of uh, the punk we know. You know, Sex Pistols, Look Over Your Shoulder, The Pistols Are Coming, The John Ingham stuff. I even bought the Melody Maker when Caroline Coon had a, a punk thing. But before that, there was Max Bell was writing about, he was calling bands punk, Aerosmith, he was calling them punk, there was Kiss, they were being called punk. Uh, Charles Shamari was writing about garage bands, and the link between garage bands and film and... 60s, the hippie stuff, you know, that crossover. He, he was, Charles Shamari was linked, and New York, Nick Kent, of course, yeah, was linking together the stuff like the Pink Fairies and Hawkwind and uh, this weird stuff and garage stuff, you know, how you, everyone playing uh, Wild Thing. And Wild Thing was a kind of song that linked to a lot of these bands together. Uh, so all that was being, they were all talking about this word punk. They're all kind of using this word punk in the enemy before they became Malcolm McLaren's vision of punk. Um, of course, Paddy Smith, 75, that album came out. That was a crucial album, came out. Uh, it was that, we, we knew punk at that point, and John Peel was playing punk at that point. Uh, so that was, uh, my, that was my kind of awareness of it. As you said, I, I, was, I was absolutely one of those kids, 17-year-old, and, oh, wow, look at this. I've got to go and see the pistols. Like, they're speaking to me. They're speaking my language. So and, did, you, did, you, did you just jump on a train and go to London if the bands weren't coming to you? What did you do? 
I found out that there was a, a night bus would go on Friday nights, would leave Glasgow, arrive in London at six o'clock in the morning. And there's also one that left London at 11 o'clock at night and arrived back in Glasgow on Monday morning, six o'clock. And I used to get that, not every not every weekend, but some week, you know, some weekends I'd jump on that bus. And so I'd be in, in London, I'd have a Saturday and Sunday in London, supposed to sleep at a station or wherever. And see it that way again you'll be rushing in just hoping a band's gonna play sometimes you you get the wrong week i still remember seeing the fabulous poodles at the marquee yeah <laughs> what can you do <laughs> another thing and then the, the crucial one was i saw the damned i got timed it properly saw the damned at the hope and anchor and uh that's when um shane mcgowan had just had his ear bitten at the clash gig at the ica he was on the cover of the sounds and he spoke to me at the, the gig uh, say, oh, you're Scottish and stuff. You know, they, that point, I did have a broad Scottish accent, and uh, you, developed, you developed one by that point. You 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 learned to fit in by developing a Scottish accent. Aye, aye. <laughs> You've got it. You need it. Last last week, I sent you. I was expecting Alan McGee on the other end of the Zoom call, you know, and and I got I got some version of a more polite version of myself. But anyway, so you had a bit of a Scottish accent, and Shane noticed that you were Scottish and asked you, I, yeah, but asked so you I think, back. I think, yeah. I'll say that's because I think him being Irish, he got a sort of a Celtic bond. This Celtic bond, and he introduced me to Mark P at the gig, and and that's why I said to Mark, so, you know, can I write about coming down from Scotland to see. To see the damned and see punk and he said no go and do your own fanzine go home and do your own uh, which is obviously the, the catalyst for the whole Richard torn then sean uh, shane's put me up in his, his flat that night and then showed me a, a record shops and things in the morning on sunday morning so that was a real help he actually f introduced me to the scene if you like that's you know, amazing you, you mentioned i mean i said earlier i used the word quintessential i'm gonna have to use it again because that would be your quintessential coming down to London and 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 uh, yeah, I'm also going to say Glasgow is a big city. I mean, it's not like you were you know you were coming to the big city. Glasgow is a city, but you come down to London to witness punk. You get to see the person who's running the pretty much the only punk fanzine. You get to see the Damned. Uh, I love the fact that in your first issue you claimed the Damned interview, which runs about a paragraph. But we, we <laughs> can get we can get to that. And then you meet Shane McGowan. He offers to put you up and then shows you around the London scene. That's, yeah. You you couldn't script it better, could you? No, the only thing I could have scripted it better is if I'd come down for the, the punk rock festival in June, which yeah. I think I was going to come down to, and something happened, and I didn't go down to it. Um, and that's one thing. One thing I, met, I regret. We talk about regrets in our lives, but then at least as I say, I saw the dam. That's October, and uh, I saw Mark. I... And you know, the catalyst was to go go back to Scotland and speak to my mate Skid Kid, say, "Well, we can, let's do a fanzine," and then. And, and lo and behold, you did it. Uh, the, 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 one of the reasons I'm going to be able to uh, sound like I know what I'm talking about is because there is a Ripson Torn book. I think I should say that very quickly. I've got my copy here. Oh, it was. It is. Uh, it's an. It's a really good. I'm just going to hold it up. Not that anybody will be seeing a picture, but they might. It's a. It's a, com, a compendium that's got every single page from every single issue of Ripson Torn, um, including ads for the police. Uh, which I thought was hilarious, but it's got all the ads. It's got everything, and yeah, I've got my best of jamming book ne ne next next to it right now for this conversation. And the jamming one is, you know, obviously I've I've got my own story, but um, there's only a short period where the jamming one we could have printed every page from every issue, and it would have felt coherent. And what I love about the ripped and torn journey is it's coherent uh, in the sense that from the very first issue. You seem to have an aesthetic, and that aesthetic develops, improves, 
but it's always there and and within your book it feels like you're holding the the natural progress of of this important fanzine uh, that is certainly a compliment, but part of the reason I'm saying that, and uh, we're going to pick through certain certain pages that I've put a little sticky note on, is that the very first issue feels, even now, all these years later, almost 50 years later, uh, feels just incredibly right. It's handwritten, but it feels right. And I'm, I'm, I want to ask you straight off, did, you said you were working in advertising, but you're also like 17, 18. Did you have any idea what you were doing, or was this just all done on instinct? All done on instinct. Right, obviously, we had a copy of Sniffing Glue to think that's what it looks like. So why it's got 10 pages and stapled in the corner, because that's what Sniffing Glue was. That was our template. Let's do it like that. And he, he, a lot of his was handwritten, so we thought you can handwrite. Uh, but apart from that, it was like, what do we do? I said to Skid, what, what do we put in it? We've got the damned. So I cut the picture of the damned out the, out the sounds, put that on the cover. And then, and you say, I, I remembered stuff I'd spoken to the damned at Hope and Anchor, and that became the, the short interview. Yeah. And after that, it was like, what records, you know, what, what do we put in record reviews? It's interesting, the charts. I did the chart right away. I love charts. Yeah, yeah, you do love charts, which is funny because I, I've always thought of you as this very renegade punk, but you couldn't help the, uh, you couldn't help the chart aspect. Uh, Ramones, number one, damned, number two. Uh, the album's very New York modern, well, actually very US, I should say, East Coast modern lovers, Lou Reed, Lou Reed, Paddy Smith, Ramones, modern lovers, Velvets. I think I guess that speaks to the fact there were no British punk records in '76, not albums. That's right. I don't think New Rose hadn't come out then. Yeah, got no singles. Anarchy wasn't to come out till well next after. month, a month after. Yeah. You got New Rose at number two, but that's oh, it. Oh, had come out then. Okay, I was trying. Well, it's, it's not. I'm. Just, that's the album chart. What well, the singles chart would have us. Oh, so the, the singles has uh, so this is uh, your first issue is you've dated it, November seventy six. You got I want to be your boyfriend by the Ramones on import, New Rose, Roadrunner, Max's Kansas City by Wayne County, Gloria by Paddy Smith, Blitzkrieg Bop. I'm so happy to see you've got Substitute by the Who in there, even if you did write boring old farts, because um, <laughs> it's my favourite song in the world. Uh, you got Graham Parton, that Graham Parker and Nick Lowe. And you round out the top 10 with the Velvet Underground, uh, uh, an import bootleg. And then look, just seeing what else was out by November 76. Interestingly, the vibrators were out. Um, we forget how early the vibrators were. And then you've got, um, oh, before the vibrators, at number 11, Live at the Marquee, Eddie and the Hot Rods, which I actually uh -huh. own. Yeah, which shows us the slim pickings. But um, <laughs> you know, we're literally starting at the beginning. We won't have time to get to the end. But... Uh, you're saying you did it by instinct, but your instinct must have been correct because uh, based on what you've written at the front of the book, you the thing took off. Like, what? Mm. A, the biggest problem any fanzine ever has is printing. So you must have had an in to printing. Uh, so just tell me about that because if, assuming you did, and I think you did, that that was more important than you may have even realized at the time. But the B, how many did you print initially? And were you surprised when people wanted more? Right. The very first run was 10, 10 copies, 100 pages. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> which I did on the work uh, the office photocopier over a week, sneaking pages down. The, the photocopier was in the typing pool. And you had, so you had to kind of sneak it in. You can just sit in a, just do it all in one go. And I'm sure they knew what I was doing. Those girls are very clever. They knew I was up to I was up to no good, but of those ten copies, uh, I managed to get orders 
from Rough Trade and Compendium. They ordered 200 copies each. This is 400 copies. Wow. Um, so I, sent, I sent one out to each of them just because they were advertising the back of the papers. I thought, well, let's see. And they all said, there's no way I'm going to be able to photocopy that amount. Sneak that down. So I went around the corner to a printer. There was a printer nearby, just sorting the yellow pages. Took my took my pages down to him, the originals, and said, can you do me 400 copies of these? Photocopies. He says, well, I can, but it'll be cheaper to do it on this big machine here, this litho printer. He called it a litho printer, but it meant nothing to me. It's like a, spe- like a spaceship. Was walking into it. A printer is like a giant spaceship. All these machines and noises and lights. Yeah, yeah. And uh, he said, but the minimum order is 500. I said, I can do the 400, but it's the same cost to do 500. And I says, go ahead. It's about a week's wages. It cost me a week's wages to do. And then I had uh, 100 spare, so I managed to get that, that lot and posted them off by Red Star Parcel Post to Compendium and Rough Trade, who then, they paid for them. Yeah, amazing. They, they pay. I think they paid. There wasn't sale or return. It was an outright payment when they received them. Yeah, then, well, it's probably a check in the post. You know, it's, it, uh, it, they were so important. Those two shops and Compendium more so than people realise. Rough Trade, everybody knows Rough Trade. Compendium was the bookshop, uh, independent publications place on Camden High Road. Um, just above Camden Tube Station. I remember when I first went in with uh, with jamming, they were very clear, it's very uh, very right on. They were like, any racism or sexism, these get handed right back to you. And I'm like, there's none of that, <laughs> I promise you. But they were. They, this was a place where if there was an independent anarchist piece, uh, left-wing feminist, and lots of feminists, you know, that's where you would buy that stuff. And it quickly became the main non-record shop fanzine place going i think it's worth noting that probably there was a, such a dearth of fanzines and such a demand for them by the time i was doing jamming you know initially i got those stock shops to take maybe 20 so you mm-hmm. you had them pay up front for 10 times as many and i i guess that suggests that ripped and torn you know there were there were other fans are you aware of what other fanzines were going at the time i think you mentioned 48 thrills in one of your early issues yeah I, i'm wondering if that was when i came down or, or they do like uh, fanzine reviews in, in the papers and you'd hear see the names there so i think london's outrage i knew about that uh john john savage's one uh i'm wondering if 48 thrills came out slightly after and shane did one after to bondage didn't he did one yep so i wasn't really aware again being up in london for most of the time i wasn't really aware of them unless uh, either someone sent it to me or I, i'm not sure how i'd get them but I'd say no. The answer to answer your question, really, I was I was a bit isolated from what, from what was going on. And I think the two I think the fact they bought two hundred copies each was they had they, they must have had distribution going on. They wouldn't have sold all two hundred in the shop. They'd have they'd have gone out from there to other places, and they would have thought that's that's how many we can make and distribute. Which is so when people say where was it being sold, I've no idea where Rough Trade or Compendium sent them to. Um, I know when I started getting people writing from all over the world. Uh, asking for copies and they send money they send that obscure currency sellotaped to a bit of cards they have no idea is it a lot of money or not enough and uh, i i had the same thing happen obviously obviously after you and it was the most amazing feeling to be in your bedroom and and go down to the letterbox and find a letter from another country and somebody had read your fanzine and wanted the next one it was it, it made it made the world it made it worth getting up in the morning much more than school I can tell you that. I think it's, it's a lot of hard work that people didn't realise that I was going out buying these envelopes to post them and going trying to fathom out the postage to West Sweden and Australia and Brazil. I mean, we one time, I think 
this is a lot of work. You know, this is, this, people think I'm just lying around sniffing glue and watching bands, but no, there's a lot of that admin that starts to happen. We, we, so, we, we can't underestimate that. We cannot underestimate the work that goes into doing a fanzine. You, you, you know, the fact that you scribbled half of it doesn't mean it's not. Like I say, it's. I mean, you you hand wrote this, but the handwriting, the hand, excuse me, the handwriting is legible, which is important. And it's like, you know, I think you knew what you were doing. Like there, there's, I want to read you something from the first issue, Tony. Um, mm-hmm. And this is actually handwritten, but it's handwritten in two columns with like straight vertical lines down the middle. So you you clearly do have a sense of uh, of what you're trying to do. Um, you're not just like scribbling. It's uh, it's it, it's your editorial, and it's called "Can Rich Stars Rock" by Tony. You dated it 12th of November '76. It makes you fucking puke when you think of those boring cunts. Brackets like the whole of Led Zeppelin, The Who, Paul McCartney, Stevie Wonder, etc., lazing away in some hot tropical paradise while us poor punters have to make do with any shit they care to to pour on us. But it's all over now. Brackets Rolling Stones or another. So's Elton John, with the emergence of such saviors as the Sex Pistols, Clash, Damned. All right, it's 2023. Elton John is touring. Admittedly, last tour the Who are touring. Rolling Stones still tour. Paul McCartney's touring. Sex Pistols clash. Damned. Damned are still touring, but maybe that's that's something to observe. What do you what <laughs> when you look back on punk now? Do you feel let down? Do you feel? Um, I mean, how do you feel when I read that back to you? I think uh, it's great. It sounds great. It sounds really lively. But I think you were saying about Compendium. If Compendium had seen that at the time, you were you were doing jamming, taking it in there. They probably said, "Oh, I can't have this one. It's got these words in it." Then yeah, they may, well, they may well have done. Yeah, they may have done. This is true. So uh, these, and I probably, I've actually probably stopped using words like that, the, the c word and stuff, um, because uh, I obviously I developed this. Some things in the written torn is about what, when um when I stopped wearing swastikas. Another thing about a sexual sensual revolution and all this stuff. It's, it's very much my my own uh, understanding and learning, development, personal development within the, within London. Uh, not just the punk area, but actually life. <clears throat> um, and it's all, I put it all in, I, all up front, I wear everything on my sleeve. And so all, all that stuff, you can see how I stopped speaking like that, became more considered. Uh, and then Till Crass came out, of course, that then towards the end of it, and Torn Crass, and that all sort of started again. And then the anarcho side of it, it brought all that, that kind of what you just read is very similar to what, uh, that could be a Crass lyric. It could yeah. almost be a crass lyric, but I mean, I I guess maybe I'm 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 jumping forward. You would have been incredibly uh, optimistic, passionate. You thought punk was the revolution. Punk was a revolution to quite a large degree, but at the end of the day, those rock stars are still around. And you know, uh, I I mean, I'm interested. I'm taking a long term view here. The Tony D of 2023 says it was still a revolution it was still wonderful we still all put out our fanzines we had a journey we we shook up the system and so what i mean i'm putting words into your mouth that might be how i would feel about it i guess yeah i think there's only very few disappointments I, and i kind of rode them really that when clash signed to cbs and people saying that's that was the death of punk was that the death of punk uh the betrayal uh, i don't think so i thought it's great you Again, this is a go, go to a wider audience. Don't 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 get stuck in an independent label selling ten thousand copies where you can go to CBS and sell ten million, or you know you can. You've got a distribution again. Being being a 
the fanzine distribution, understanding about distribution, getting things out. I was, I was I, that that view of yeah, get to the biggest label you can with the biggest distribution, the biggest advertising arm. That's the way to to, to beat the rich stars. Can rich stars rock? Um, they they they, don't, they can't rock, but they've got a damn good uh, distribution system. Um, and that so that and that's why I thought Clash uh, Crash doing that quite Clash. Uh, the pistols breaking up in '76. I thought that was quite hard. But they, but they were, sorry, I don't, don't mean to correct you. You mean January '78? Sorry, '78. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. they went, but when they went to America, they were almost breaking up before they went anyway. Really, I think the Glenn Matlock when Glenn Matlock left Pistols, and you could debate these things all all the time. When did it happen? When did it really stop? Or did it stop? But I think it was. It was a revolution. It was fantastic. I'm just really lucky to be part of it, and it was right at the time for me. So, and I'm still living it. I still think if it wasn't for that, I, my life would have been completely different. Maybe I would have been going to see Elton John tonight. Maybe I would have gone to see, going to see the Rolling Stones. Um, I saw actually, thanks to the Apollo, we're working with, with the Apollo thing. They used to give me tickets. I had tickets for the Who. We you know, things you couldn't get. You know, they were sell out, sell out within minutes. I had tickets to the Rolling Stones. I and I. Sold my tickets to the Rolling Stones. I didn't know. Right. That was nineteen seventy-five. I refused to go and see the Stones. Yeah, the, fair enough. Gave me tickets. Yeah, I mean, fair, fair enough. Um, fair enough. I think you lived by uh, you lived by your ethics. You moved down to London really quickly, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. That was February, February seventy-seven. I've done three issues have been published. Number issue four was on the way. It was on the cusp. Uh, I, I practically practically finished it. I think on number in that number four, I talk about by the time you read this, I'll be in Scotland. I'll I'll be in London, and it's it's more about a fanzine is written in Glasgow by punks for punks, not by punks for Glasgow punks. And so I tried to make a, a thing that and I moved to London. That it's becoming untenable at work because I was doing so much time putting so much time into the ripped and torn, and uh, and also by that point we had the Bill Grundy thing, the, the Bill Grundy. Which didn't have up in Scotland. I mean, it wasn't shown in Scotland, but the aftermath, all the newspapers having the covers, the filth and the fury. Um, I cut all those out, and I, I had them all stuck around this, this part of the office I was in. Hold my walls plastered in these pistols things. Uh, Fantastic. And that was quite a. What's it called? A, it was a statement, a statement to say the least. And uh, so I just thought, you know, it's like you've got to decide. You've got to, keep, you know, concentrate on your work and concentrate on this. And like, well, there's only one answer. Good night, you know, goodbye work. And then I came down to it. And it was, as you say, it's very quick. I started the Ripped and Torn 1 in October. I was writing October, published November. Within three months, I was, I was down in London. You were living in squats, weren't you? Yeah, I came down. I very lucky, very fortuitous. I went to Rough Trade and said, uh, I've moved to London now. Do you, you know, well, first of all, I came down and stayed with Sandy and Alex Ferguson, who are the nobodies. Sandy Robertson and Alex Ferguson. Uh, they were staying in Wilsdon. In fact, if you look at number four or five, the address is the flat in Wilsdon. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, which is quite remarkable. So I'd had that planned. Obviously, I'd had that plan that I was going to go down. The boy said, "When you come down, come come and see us." Not realise I'll turn up with all my bags and sleep on the floor. But then I went to Rough Trade, and they someone there said, "We've got a squat around the corner. Do you want to move in?" And, unbelievable, and uh, I did. Then Skid, Skid Kid came down from when I, once I, I got myself my feet under the table there. Skid Kid came down from from Cumberland Hall and moved in with me. Then Sandy and Alex 
decided, well, why are we paying rent? And so they decided to move in as well. So what was the what was the squat scene like? Because we do have an age difference, and I was daunted by all of that. Yeah, you know, I'm I'm literally 13 at this time, 12. At the, at the point that you moved out, even when I was 15 and doing my fanzine and spending a lot of time around rough trade, I, I was wary of the, the, the sort of squat scene. I, I was there in certain places. I, I hung with Scritty Politi. I told you that last week. They had a squat in Camden. It's not like I didn't go in the, in squats. I was too young to leave home for sure. But I was also sort of wary of, uh, I think I always had the wariness of a drug culture I, um, mm-hmm. other than others. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I've always been very open about, about having done others in my life, but I was wary of a drug culture, which you, um, I, I'm interested. What was, what, I mean, if you've got to sum it up in two minutes, the squat scene in West London, 1977. Right. What's it like? I'd never heard of a squat until I got down. Till till the person in Rough Trade said that I'd never heard of a squat. I didn't know what it, what it was, that what they existed. The whole concept was new to me, opening my eyes. And this the squat they had was it was in Fresonia, so it's a bit different from just squatting random houses. This is a whole street, a little neighbourhood that was totally squatted. It had been compulsory purchased by the by the council to extend the Westway, and they'd been left, and the, the plans had changed, so this whole area was abandoned left left abandoned it was moved in by hippies a whole lot of hippies moved into it and called it frestonia this is the freedom it applies to have a free state of frestonia to break away from england <laughs> uh, it's that sort of place uh, so it, so not only i'd never heard of squats before I'd, and i moved to the street it's so the whole place was like one big carnival one big yeah i said the back the back gardens were all knocked together into giants so there's two big blocks that look like a free festival all these teepees and things and hippies and people standing. There's the guy Jesus who wears all the to festivals and stand there with his arms out. He he lived there. He used to stand oh there in the garden half the day with his arms there. This brings us back to the fact that punks and hippies, uh, despite everything Johnny Rotten may have said or whoever said never trust a hippie, um, hippies were essentially punks ahead of their time, longer day. It's all very, very similar culture, isn't it? It's the outsider, it's the outsider culture, isn't it? Yeah, I, th- I think there's a certain... Branch. This is like the hardcore hippies who who had gone off to do an alternative life, live an alternative life. It wasn't uh, you call it the plastic. The people called plastic punks. They were like plastic hippies who would have normal jobs and go and see Pink Floyd and go home again, or go, you know these and call themselves a hippie. I think that's 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 one area. And these people were like really had gone in to an alternative lifestyle, alternative living. And again, I think maybe the squat scene for punks, which which developed elsewhere in London and around, around the country, that was, again, was people breaking away, leaving home and having to live somewhere. Some people left home for you know various reasons. They had to leave home and they finished up in London or Leeds. And that, that's another area, I think it's another, for another podcast about how the squats uh, opened and why. Uh, as I say, I was quite lucky. Well, first of all, being given the space in a squat that's already established, I didn't have to go and break into it. Uh, and it's all, and it's very nice. It's, it's an, an old pub. So it's, we're squatting an old pub called the Trafalgar, number two, Bramley Road, if you want, West Ten. If you want to go down there, <laughs> it's now it's now a block of flats. But yeah, so everything the, changes, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah. The, pub, the ground floor was just where the pub used to be. It was all empty, full of old stuff. There's actually loads of Aussies and ITs, International Times, which I used to go down and read. But all of all of above that was all normal rooms, and there's a kitchen and bathrooms and stuff. So it, it wasn't just living, you know, living in an empty house with no electricity or anything. 
this put you very, very much at the heart of the punk scene. And I've, I'm, I'm opening up another page here from, uh, you might, uh, I can probably tell you which issue it is. It's issue, oh, it's issue three. And on one page, you've got Tony in Wonderland, uh, which is you. On the other page, I've got to give you credit because you review the Buzzcock single, Spiral Scratch. Oh, and right. you, you are very big about its importance. Um, for all that you talk about distribution and the need for distribution, you're really clear that this is a very, very important record. So kudos for that. But on your Tony in Wonderland, you talk about um, coming down to London and you go off uh, uh, you you go off to I guess is it the ICA to catch a Warhol movie, yeah. and then you go to Covent Garden to the Roxy, and you talk about Sham sixty nine. Seeing Sham sixty nine, I do like that you say the singer didn't have any star quality, even though he tried very hard to disguise the fact. I, I've just I've always had a problem with uh, that that person. Then you go upstairs to meet the stars. Time. Johnny Rotten, Johnny Thunder, Gene October, Mick Jones, Mark P, Two Kids from Eater, John Ingham, Tony James, Captain Sensible, Caroline Kuhn, Shane, and that's before Generation X headline. I mean, if you dropped a bomb on the Roxy that night, it would be the end of the punk scene, wouldn't it? <laughs> it's pretty it's phenomenal. These, these are going to each other's gigs. I think this is something you, you can see from there, that all these bands are going to see each other. They weren't, they weren't precious, you know. Um, and the people could go to the go to the Roxy to hang out. So again, I think what you see there is they're taking it for granted. You're saying now how amazing all these people, but, but everyone's just taking it for granted. I think that that's something I've seen in scenes subsequently that you don't realise at the time because if you do, it's not going to be genuine. That down the line, people will you'll be going. We all used to be in a room together, didn't we? You know, and I guess yeah. that's what was going on then. It just like looking back on it, I was like. Oh my gosh! You were in like everybody was at that gig to see Gen X and Sham Sixty Nine, but I guess everybody went to the Roxy because there weren't a lot of places, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, a lot of places to see. Yeah, it's funny saying I'd, I'd forgotten about that Gene October being there because that Gen X was basically his band, Chelsea. That they all left him and formed right. their own band. Oh, well, then you know what? I, because because we could talk all day, and I like to keep these to an hour. I'm going to jump to the act that you uh, you invested your your enthusiasm in. Perfect, perfect uh, segue. Adamant, Adam and the Ants talking about people, uh, you know, getting sacked by their band or sacking their band. <laughs> You're a big Adam and the Ants fan. You sort of hung your your mast on Adam and the Ants. Um, yeah. Later now, now this is important to me for a couple of reasons because uh, down the line, as Ripton Torn got bigger, and and it looked in '78, you started having some color on the cover. It looked really, really cool. I was in awe of it. I'd go up to Rough Trade as a schoolboy and be in awe of it. When I I um, when I decided uh, summer of '78 to, to take jamming from being a school fanzine to trying to be something you know properly printed and wanting to be do interviews and stuff. You know, we got an interview with Adam Ant, and I had seen the, the collage that Adam Ant did for your issue 13, I think, a one-page collage that he filled with swastikas and uh, bondage images and a quotes. He was obviously very thin-skinned because it was a, it, he had quotes from the press about how terrible he was. And, I of course, Julie it, Birch, it was a specific Julie Birchall Right. Right, so I took that. I took that, of course, being literal, because uh, you know you couldn't seem to mention Adamant, and I wasn't buying fanzines per se. Uh, so I was reading the Enemy and Sounds, and they were all saying, "No, Adam, Adamant's a Nazi." Um, 
so this was like I went and interviewed Adam Ant, and I was like, "Oh, tell me about the swastika." And he's like, "I fucking hate Nazis. I'm Jewish, you know. Like, <laughs> like I'm I'm from the Roma. Can't don't you know irony?" And I'm like, "No." <laughs> um, it was that page in ripped and torn. Uh, but you were very close to Adam Ant. Uh, who became something else entirely. What was the attraction of Adam Ant early on? Okay. I was going to just go back a little story about that, that swastika page and the, the bondage and stuff. Imagine that compendium seeing that the first time I took it. That was on the Ripton Torn 1. That might have killed my career. Yeah, um, you've got another collage very early on that's uh, in issue three or four with you've done with lots of boobies in it. Uh, I think do you know it's issue one? three. I, I blame it on the Skid Kid. Yeah. Anything like that, I blame it on the Skid Kid. Oh, okay. All right. I mean, but it's cool art. It's very cool art. I'll give it yeah. that. Classic cut and paste for sure. Um, yeah, so Adam, that, that piece, you say the famous swastika stuff. When I was doing the book, actually, Ecstatic Peace said, is there anything in the Ripped and Torns that we've got to be worried worried about? Uh, when we, if you go ahead and probably we're, we're going to get sued by anybody. And I said, the only thing I can think of is that page. And we went through and found that page. I remember we were sitting there with Thurston Moore, who's from the Sonic Youth, who uh, co-publishes co it, his wife, Eva Prince, was sitting in a coffee shop looking at that page, studying it. And it's like everything hung on this page, whether they thought, no, this is too much. And he said, and then Thurston goes, it's obvious, it's, it's obvious what he's trying to say here. He's obviously he's anti the swastikas. He said, I'll go, I'll stand up for this in court. <laughs> right. and so, so we went ahead and did the book. That, but everything hung on that, hung on that page, sitting in the coffee shop, where it could have all fallen apart, so no, it's too much. What about at the time? Did you have problems printing it at the time? And what was the punk fascination with the swastika? I think it was the shock. I mean, go back to Susie Sue, really, because the very first pictures of the punks were called the Bromley Contingent, when she she has a photo of her with a swastika, with a, a, a small bra on and a swastika, spiky hair. That was the look. She just she created that look. And was it around? It was around a lot of the time. It wasn't just punks. There's a lot of... People wore it. Um, uh, cream. Ginger Baker has a swastika swastikas on uh, his cream cream albums. He's wearing he's wearing swastikas. I know because his daughter told me that. His daughter Nettie Nettie Baker. She comes and says, "Oh, you weren't the first with swastikas." And my dad used to have swastikas. You know. Oh, why? <laughs> anyway, right. so it was around. It was around a lot. And then Susie Susie put that put that thing in. And there used to be a small advert at the back of NME most weeks selling Nazi memorabilia. And you could buy Nazi armbands from 50p, I think they were. I bought one. I bought one. Uh, and it was just, it just, it is a strong symbol. Uh, at that time, you know. It's always to say, uh, later on in the Ripton Tour, I put a thing why I stopped wearing swastikas. And I made actually an article about it. And I, so I do describe it in the book, in the fanzine. Uh, but what was the fascination? It was just it was shock. People just say these things. It's probably true. It's shock, but it looked looked good on Susie, so we all wanted to be Susie too. Um, right. So that that was that. So Ad, Adam's thing. What was what was so brilliant about Adam and Yance compared to what we saw with Ant Music and Prince Charming? Um, not too much later. All right. I'll just go back to another anecdote. I'm not putting you off. I'm going to go to another anecdote. Yeah, yeah, yeah. About that page that. Oh no, it's really, really important. It is. Important. Adam has said to me at, at one of the gigs, I'm, I want to do something about the review. So I want to do something about that review. And the people calling me Nazis. Can I put something in Ripton Torn? I says, Of course. And uh, he's very, very lax, is Adam. He missed deadline after deadline after deadline. I saved a page. I'd saved a page for him. And he kept never showing up to where he was supposed to meet and get, give me this page. 
And eventually one point the coroner is like last minute and I'd even written a substitute page to go in there. It was like almost the day before going to the printers. And it was like meet at the Coronet Cinema on Notting Hill Gate, outside outside the Coronet State Cinema at 11 o'clock. So I go up there, I think he's not going to be here. And there he was, he's waiting for me. And he says, I've, I've done it, Tony. And he said, what do you think? <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, my God. Be careful what you wish for, Tony. I, I thought, I'm going to print it. I said, thanks, Adam. It's, he, he was laughing. He thought I was going to reject it. It's trying to be shocking to me, you know. And I thought, well, I'm going to print it and see what happens. It's Because it's you. You know, one thing that swayed me was the fact it's the first pictures of him with the glasses on. He's mm. like, done a little uh, photo booth picture of him coming out of the toilet, which is he's cut into the toilet, coming out of the toilet, he's wearing his glasses. And the first time he'd ever had pictures of him in his glasses. So I thought, that, that alone is enough, you know. And so, right. so we went forward with it. How it got to that stage that Adam was writing for me and being slagged off in the press was back one day on the King's Road, I was selling ripped and torns. And I went to the Beaufort Market where Polystyrene had a store. And she used to take some ripped and torns off me. And she said, are you going to come and see me tonight, The Man in the Moon? Uh, I wasn't. I didn't even know she was playing. I said, yeah, of course, Polly. This is how blasé we were in those days, you know. Yeah, yeah, sure. yeah, Polly. And she said, you've come early because the support band's really great. And the support band happened to be Adam and the Ants. So I did get there early. And, yeah, they were phenomenal. This is one of their very first gigs. They've done the, the ICA gig, which uh, is talked about. We're going to try and come into other stuff later. Um, but it was no, nothing I'd seen in my life. It starts off, he was tied to a chair in a big a, a straight jacket, a Cambridge rapist mark over his mask with a zip across his face zipped up it's tied to this chair and the band were playing this very slow dirty song which is a plastic surgery you know plastic surgery but very very long and slow and then andy warren the, the bassist kicks kicks the chair over as adam flies on the floor and then he escapes from the straight jacket uh, unzips the zip keeps the mask on unzips the zip and starts singing you've got a face like a Labrador. This is unbelievable. This is not anything you're expecting. And eventually he spends, he takes the mask off about halfway through the gig and he's crawling around at his hands and knees into the audience. He's, someone kicked him in the face and he kissed the foot. And it is like nothing. <laughs> this is a support band. You know, at the end of it, it's like, oh my, this is unbelievable. You know, bands I've seen like Generation X, The Lurkers, uh, 999 were great. I've seen you know, bands like that I was seeing a lot of. But this is like beyond. This is this is taking... We're not in punk land anymore. And uh, so I started following from that point. I started to follow wherever they went. I did the first interview. A few months later, I did an, managed to do an interview with them. They'd just done the Jubilee film at that point. And Adam Sell was the first person to ever interview them. Yeah. Uh, and then later on, I think at issue 14 is when they're on the cover. Yeah, yeah. And that was a really uh, that was a very important issue for me. I, I know I must have bought that issue, and I was looking through it just earlier, and it it's, it just feels so. It's October seventy eight, which is uh, when I was really feeling starting to go to gigs as opposed to 
at the occasional concert. And I remember reading about Eraserhead, not knowing, you know, David Lynch from none of us did from a hole in the ground. And you didn't write that one, but just being like, there are movies like this. And Jeremy Glucks written a piece about trash rock and with a and you've got this big Adamant interview. Patrick Fitzgerald, who by the way, I I loved and just the other day I found myself singing to myself, banging and shouting out of nowhere. So really? I mean yeah, Patrick's still alive, and not that he'd be listening, but I mean, you know, his music embedded itself. You've got, you've got the new Buzzcocks album, or a case of making amends. You've got. I remember you wrote this review about you can't put your arm around the memory, and I seem to remember that you said something like it was the greatest record of all time. Do you say that? Blows anything the Heartbreakers ever breathe completely out of the window. Compulsory purchase. I mean, <laughs> it's endured. An ad for Prague Beck, who I loved. First ever use of the word existential, which is so overused these days. Um, my God, what a, yeah, God, what a hip issue. But but if we're going to follow the journey of punk, what happened to Adam? It just raises this thing that uh, it's. I think it was always a tough one for people to swallow that like here's somebody who was so left field, so left field, and then they just embraced everything that that success could offer. Yeah. And what that says about us putting our faith in anybody, be it a boring old farts like the Who or Led Zeppelin or young punk rockers like Adam Ant. Um, were, we, were we fooled again, as the Who say? Were we fooled again? <laughs> but I think I think with the Ants thing, maybe it actually was a springboard, a vessel for, for Ripped and Torn, because uh, first of all, it was like how I imagine seeing the Pistols for the first time, that very first wave of punk, the Pistols and the Clash, seeing it, the Ants... At the very early days and developing like as they did it was like seeing you know to me that they were that was my punk uh, so it was great for me personally listening to it and living it but for writing wise a lot of the music press i say sniffing good stopped music press is now right weren't writing about punk it's over for them punk died for them so there's no there's less competition people had to buy ripped and torn to read about the ants and a lot of people were liking the ants so it became a very underground alternative scene if you like and a lot of fanzines, obviously yourself included, started writing about the ants. The, the fanzine world created the ants' uh, fan base, if you like, with the, the communications. So Adam had to go through us. He was no choice. He had to sort of go through us. Max was saying, saying, as he says in a book, that Adam always wanted to be a superstar. He always wanted to be play the big venues, and he just put up with us punks. Maybe he, that's he, he just put up with us as a, as a part of the path. And I've said to a back that. You see the way he worked on stage and the way the energy he put into everything. That's not just someone just take just using uh, using us. He he loved every minute of it. He put himself into into it every minute of what he was doing with with the early ants. So I think she's she's, she's very right. She he had this long term plan to be this to be what he became, but whilst he was doing it, he actually found and found himself in this in this uh, milieu, the punk milieu. Um. And when, he, when, he, when he first came out, the Kings of the Wild Frontier stuff, I liked it. We all liked it. We're living in we're living in uh, Hampstead at this point. Well, West Hampstead for affairs and not for revolutions. It's an old Ant song. Yeah. Um, well, West Hampstead is is for revolutions. And uh, but we uh, loved it. We were playing the first out uh, the first singles, Kings of the Wild Frontier, uh, Dog Eat Dog, and Goody Two Shoes was then. And this Ant music was the last one, wasn't it? The last of those that yeah. bass really covered both bases i remember mick mercer wrote in his fanzine panache about one time he's on the bus at the tube and he heard these schoolgirls singing ant music 
and he had to stop himself from joining in. Yeah, maybe that's maybe that says it. I mean, I didn't mean to take us off on a tangent, but I remember that. And it's also important for another reason. And by the way, Tony, I think what I'm going to do, we, we talked an hour ago before we hit the record button about the fear of uh, Rips and Torn being a whole episode and then kill your pet puppy. And I think what I'm going to do looking at the, the clock is say we're going to talk about Rips and Torn. And assuming uh, that this show comes out well, we'll have you back another time and we'll talk about kill your pet puppy because yeah. you know, you're, you're this is this is important and uh you know i'm really glad you wanted to do this and one reason i'm glad you wanted to do this is um when i got uh, as i say a bit more serious about jamming took it away from being a school fanzine i tried my best to put out an independent you know little little yeah magazine and uh uh, we put out this issue with the Weller on the cover and Adam Ant and John Peel. And then we got a letter from you. And see, last week, I couldn't pin what it was. I was looking for where you um, uh, slagged off jamming in print, and I couldn't find it. And then I remembered what it was. And this is, I think, that, so, so we're getting on like a house on fire. I have no problems with this. But I did find it, and we printed it in Jamming 6. And so what you wrote about jamming, uh, this just you know, tells you you hadn't lost your edge. You wrote, oh, excuse me, I keep hitting the uh, the pop filter here. Your fanzine is the sort that gives fanzines a bad name. Haven't you ever heard of experimenting with design slash style? Your John, in, your John Peel interview was a good idea, but you asked all the obvious questions. John Peel has a unique sociological view on all matters, past, present, and future, if you'd ask some intelligent questions. In my defense... That wasn't me did that interview. Uh, you know who it was. Thanks for the mention in the Ants interview, by the way. Even if you did get the wrong end of the stick about Adam's page, you fell into the trap that other concerned young middle-class people fall into. <laughs> fell into. Congratulations. <laughs> now, I... So that's quite I, nice. I don't think you'll be honest. I've actually not just read that jamming, but actually not just saying it's rubbish, actually breaking it down into... Wait. You critiqued it. Now, there was an unfortunate fallout from that because you weren't the only person to critique it, and you didn't do it in public. What you did is you sent me the letter, and you didn't mention jamming in Ripped and Torn, which is why I couldn't find it. Mm -hmm. You sent that letter, and it hurt me because I bought Ripped and Torn, and I admired it. Um, you weren't the only one. We got, like, a lot of acclaim for that issue, and I later met people who said what I loved about jamming was it wasn't sort of cut and paste, Ripped and Torn. It was... It was, you know, I was it mod like. I don't know what I was doing. It was, it was how I laid it out. It, it was all I knew. But I remember specifically. Um, I remember specifically being on the bus home and seeing somebody like a school kid who looked like a bit of a punk and thinking if I got my fanzine out, maybe he'd ask what it was. I got it out and he went, "Oh, that fanzine's rubbish. It's terrible. Don't bother." And I said, "Well, it's mine." And he said, and he sat down with me and gave me this big critique about about why it was too neat and tidy. And he was really friendly. And I took a lot of this on board because I wanted to be in the fanzine world. So I would, I, I, I was her and I might have been defensive and then we were defensive in jamming, but somebody else was involved in jamming and he wrote back to you and started a sort of war about it. And that was his, um, that was his default reaction was to go to war with you. And, and it created a sort of feud that interestingly, a year or two down the line, I, I mean, I kicked him out of jamming really, really quick because he was disruptive and trying to take over and wasn't what I wanted to be. But I think he was, sort of went over to your camp, and which says a lot about him. Um, I, 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 I quite admire that you wrote that, and it hurt at the time, but I don't think you were wrong. I was a middle-class kid. I misunderstood Adam's page. I mean, you know, hands up. Yeah. Guilty see, as I, I, see, I might have been thin-skinned 
that you'd, you'd, you'd criticise that page, which I'd had to uh, print, and you know the whole story behind it, which I didn't say there to you, didn't tell anyone about the struggle to get it off Adam and the decision to print it, and then to be for it. Uh, for it to then to be taken there, taking the wrong end of the stick about it. I can't remember what you wrote about it, but um, you're probably asking Adam about the source stickers, and then him, rather than saying that's a great critique of Julie Birchill's uh, slagging off of you, a great response. No, you've gone, you that's what you took the wrong end of the stick, not realized that yeah. it was a response to something. Um, but yeah, I think I am. The thing is, you say you were hurt by it, but you printed it, yeah. We printed it. We printed it. We responded, um, and there was plenty of praise for, for for the zine. But clearly, jamming was considered like a little bit of an, you know, an, uh, I don't know, an outcast. It was what it was. I was fourteen. You grew up on a lot of New York music. I I was like a Who fan that had had uh, spent ten minutes trying to. I'd been a, a complete glam rock fan. You know, I was a Who fan. I'd spent 10 minutes trying to have my prog rock credentials. And when punk came along, it took me a little while to figure out what was going on. And when the jam hit, and initially I hated the jam, somehow I realized, oh, I've got my own Who. And suddenly when we hit that fourth year at school, God, I've told this so many times, apologies for repeating it. Yeah, we all, my fourth year class, a few of us started get, realizing we could get into the marquee and the whole world opened up for us. And it took a little while and jamming became a proper fanzine. And then I'm I'm proud. Uh, after about two more issues, I hooked up with Jolly and it became the fanzine that I wanted. Meantime, ripped and torn. You know, that period in 78 where you've got Susie on the cover, you've got Suicide on the cover. I think Wayne County, Adam Ant, you are um, the cut. The Susie cover is great. I I'm looking back on like, your layout and um, Again, instinctive layout because it's just it's it's really 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 cool and it stands the test of time. Yeah, I think I like the cross hatching, the little felt pen and drawing little cross hatchings. Yeah, so that's always a real sign, a real one of the the constants, and it's very common on that that one. Is it Rich Torn Six? I think and that Susie one. Uh, both of those there's a lot of cross hatching on them, which really works. Um, but it was it's instant. Instincts to uh, the suicide cover was done by someone from Prestonia. He said, "Oh, can I do a cover?" Okay, why not? And they and they came up with this great big suicide fold out all around, you know, the, the blood all around the back of it. Um, so sometimes you strike lucky, you know. Someone said, "Oh, go and I'll do something." Why not experiment? This is probably what I'm saying to you about the jamming thing, you know, because I was doing that. You know, experiment, you know, get out and experiment. But I, I sound a bit snotty, a bit feisty there. But. Yeah, it was. I I was. Um... You know, I looked on, I looked on your scene. You know that you were in the heart of it. I was just a humble little school kid, sort of knocking on the doors of Rough Trade. I got let in. Everybody let me in, and a year or two later, I was at the centre of it. I did notice on issue two, you literally wrote on the front cover something like "The Punk Fanzine by Punks," and I'm very aware that that was probably written completely tongue in cheek. But that the, um, perception becomes reality, and if you sort of present yourself as the big zine people will take you as that. And I learned to do that with jamming and it became reality very quick. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe yeah, think, yeah you say, yeah, it's like, don't dream it, be it. It'd be all the ants. Let's go back to the ants where Adam sort of created this character and then became it. Um, but I think, I think as well, that time of Ripton Torn is, I could have gone big if I'd known what I was doing. If I wasn't, you know, this is where I've been living in a squad, not having any kind of background in writing, publishing and distribution or, anything like that big business 
but I didn't know I didn't know how to go. I was just still just doing it on the floor of the squat with the, the cut and paste and handwriting bits. Uh, was if someone was sort of taking me under under their wing and said like, here, you know, we can we can distribute this, say like a zigzag distributor or somebody like that. I said, you know what, we, we want to make Ripton Torn big. But no, no one ever came to me and I never went to them. Uh, and I always think then that's that's what could have happened and maybe it should have happened. And Ripton Torn would have become, like, as yourself, like jamming into WH Smith's and places and would have become like a, mo a mojo or whatever type magazine or a zigzag even. But as it was, I was kind of floundering away. And, I, and I, very shortly, a few months after after that, I stopped writing it in March. Is it March '79? Is my last issue. And then I thought I'd, I'd hit a wall, maybe like the pistols. I'd hit a wall. Where do we go from here? We, you know, we've done everything now. What was the um, most you you printed? Do you remember? No. People ask me this question as if it's there's some business plan. I can't. I can't remember. I know the very first ones were being printed late at night. Zigzag, Sniffing Blues Publisher, printer. Was based in Cambridge, and Harry Harry Malowski used to drive me to the printer, and we'd just print it all through the night. We'd bring them all back home, bring them all back in Harry's van. And I have no idea how we, no idea, no idea what how many we printed. Um, I, I, rem I remember, I remember somewhere at the time being surprised it was a lot less than I thought. But I'm trying to think who told me. I I sort of thought you must be up in sniffing glue territory, and it was still in the very much in the four figures, and maybe even in the lower four figures. I think it's four, yeah, three. I'd say three thousand maximum. Yeah, that's um, not much for 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 what came down the line. I think the important thing about Ripton Torn is those three thousand copies were probably treasured. By the people who bought who bought it, because yeah. I mean, down it wasn't that far down the line. Jamming was selling that, and uh, I just thought you were bigger than that. But I, I guess you were still expanding the fanzine market because you were still early enough. You may have thought you missed the punk festival, but you were still there at the start. You were, you were, mm. you were like, you know, sniffing glue uh, was a phenomenon that people latched onto. But yours was the real deal, and it was, it was underground enough and controversial enough and all that attitude you had that it was never going to be you know tens of thousands but i always thought it was closer to 10 and, and i think you're right i remember hearing three thousand at the time yeah i think six egg you know six egg didn't have that much of a print run either which right. is quite shocking because you know i think oh, I, could, I could be as big as zigzag and find that zigzags maybe selling 10 you know, printing ten thousand, selling eight thousand. right right that's and, interesting again, bad, bad, bad distribution deal people say you couldn't buy it in scotland when I was writing for Zigzag in London, and so say we can't see your work; it's not on sale anywhere here. Yeah, it's all down to distribution, isn't it? Getting the right distribution deals. Yeah, and I don't think Rough Trade had really, yeah, you know, the cartel hadn't been formed. It was still very haphazard. They may have bought mm. two hundred of your first issue, um, but independent distribution was still very haphazard because I was trying to work my way through that, and it, it got bigger down the line. Um, before we wrap up and i want to ask you more about why you packed it in but i had forgotten about this issue um and i'm going to quote something else and i'm i'm, I'm i want to say up front well you end issue 15 by saying next issue there's a poster public image poster next uh -huh. issue all goes well should be a public image limited special see you at the rainbow hopefully Public Image did their, for people who don't know, did their debut British shows Christmas Day and Boxing Day at the uh, 78 at the Rainbow Theatre after releasing one of the greatest singles of all time, which, of course, is Public Image. And I went to the Boxing Day show and uh, hated it with a vengeance. And you went to one of these shows and you must have felt similarly because you've got a picture of Johnny uh, kneeling, uh, you know, squatting down on the front cover with one of your mad layouts 
you call it public fiasco, and you have typed. The real Johnny Rotten has stood up, and it's not a pretty sight. John Lydon, you fucking pathetic little puppet with your totally indulgent, wallowing mess of an album, with all its mediocre tunes and unfunny the first time jokes and meaningless arty bits, with your ego gratifying play safe concert and your wanky little statements about never being a punk. Why don't you just sit down, man? You're a bloody tragedy. That's the cover. That's the cover. <laughs> But so, things. It's a great picture. That picture is phenomenal. The in, printed in blue. Yeah. Some, someone from uh, America brought that picture over. So, I've got this. I've done this picture of Johnny. Do you want it? And I said, Yeah, I'd love it. And this, it's a kind of balance. The, the picture is so beautiful, and people think, Oh, he must be. You know. And I've always loved Johnny up to that point. And this writing is just so anti. What? What? You not expect to go with that picture? The yeah. thing about the headache tensions that that's about the. Nervous detention. It's about a headache pill. This is not. This is not enough. I put. Uh, you may have done that somewhere. It's uh, on that page. Like on that. Um, I hated that show, and it, it soured me off for Public Image for a long time. I, I've got t total respect for John Lydon these days, including right now. Um, total respect for him. But I, I think he was cleaning us out. I think he was deliberately alienating everybody he could, so he could start again. Because I hated that show. Um, yeah, um, and so and I'm, I'm totally with you with the single and, and the the little magazine you got with it as well, written by Michael Moorcock, and all that. And uh, I'm sure I'd written that thing about the well, big public image thing next week. It was all I was being primed up for it, saying well, Johnny really wants to do stuff with Ripton Torn. Um, though there was the thing was that Sid Vicious died pretty in that area, and that really threw everything. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I remember saying, trying discussing with somebody. Would it, do you think Johnny would do a picture with the Evening Standard with Sid Vicious dead, found dead? Would he a picture him holding it? And someone said, "Don't, don't even go there. Don't," because that, that would be that would have been the cover. Um, yeah, I, I think so. That that then is, as you and me both agree, that music, the music he then did after the the single, it just wasn't. He didn't need to do it. Like he could have done. There was a reason for it. Like you were saying, he was alienating the punk crowd and saying, "I'm not a punk. You're all a bunch of you know wasters, posers." And I think you don't, you know, if that's what you think of us, good night. You know, sit down, man. You're a bloody tragedy. Did you go to one of those shows then and hate it? Yeah, I must have gone to one. I can't remember which one. Um, but I know, other, and other people went as well. Other people had the same opinion as us. You know, it wasn't just us. You know, and so I'd written that. It's almost a kind of feeling. That's a general feeling. What's he done? So I think, and I had the picture. <laughs> I had that picture ready for the cover. Oh my God! What can I do? So obviously, I wrote that thing in a, a fit of, fit of peak. Yeah, and you know maybe he's got the last laugh. Unfortunately, it means I didn't really get metal box at the time. I, I uh -huh. you know, what 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 can I say? And yeah, maybe what can you say? We we had an age gap between us, and and you 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 were equally disenchanted. Maybe I might have thought at the time I wasn't old enough to get it. Um, I, I just I didn't like I didn't like the vibe I didn't like people sitting down um, I didn't like the wallowing endless songs uh, but I, I, my admiration is total down the line but was that we're gonna we're gonna wrap this up and we're gonna have you back to talk about what you did after Ripped and Torn and then how you came back and did Kill Your Pet Puppy but um, was that sort of all part of why there's this is it's towards the end of the book there's not a whole ton after that Johnny Rotten I, I think what you're seeing here as well is the crass was it in that Johnny Rotten that Johnny Rotten cover I, yeah i yeah. interviewed crass at the same time the same issue 
You can see the change. Yes, absolutely. It is in there in red. Uh, absolutely, 100%. And you can see the change. And Crass's influence, it comes up in every episode I have of this. Uh, yeah, Crass's vital influence. So, yes, well, it's there. Yeah, yeah I'll I review the album in the next issue. And that, 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 that's the end of it. I almost think, well, Crass have said, you know, do it. You know, you've, you've gone decadent, all this decadent, and all your decadence, people die. And like Adam, you think, oh, yeah, Adam's decadent. This John Lydon's being decadent. Let's get clear it all out. And I, I clear it all out by going abroad by just saying, uh, you're right. Maybe Ripton Torn's decadent. And ironically, I had to cover Shrink on the cover. Mm. It's a glam rock punk on the cover of the final one. And, you know, say that this is it, you know. So, yeah, were you essentially, um, what's the word, uh, not alienated? Were you um, dis uh, not even disappointed? Well, I'm, uh, God, there's a very obvious word I'm looking for. In uh, Let down, let down by punk. Did you just feel, screw it, I'm done? Or, yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, I think so. Maybe that's what's, well, not screw it, but Crass saying, you've forgotten why you started. Crass will give me a memory that this is why you started doing this in the first place. And I think, yeah, you're right. It wasn't just yeah. sitting in the squat and saying, "Oh, should I go and see John Lydon at the uh, at the Rainbow, or should I go and see another band at the Lyceum?" It should be, yeah, I've I've lost I've lost the reason for doing it, um, and to find it, I had to sort of stop. I thought there was another thing. I think is it was getting harder to sell them at gigs. Yeah, um, it was it used to be the first people was like, "Oh, fancies, oh, wow, that's great, I'll buy, I'll buy one." And you finish up, you start to take 20, 20 30 to a gig. And come back with fifteen. I used to always sell them everything. Anything that you know, people don't want this anymore. You'd maybe started feeling like you'd had your influence, had your say, and the scene was moving on, and people didn't understand. You know, there's nothing like fear. I mean, especially if you had that initial thing of people being so receptive to it, and now they're like, "I don't want to buy a copy. It's going to yeah. affect you, isn't it?" Yeah. And Crass's influence, you know, the the then there were a bunch of sort of Crass scenes, you know, came came along and. Uh, yeah, it's it's it. Uh, yeah, so essentially, you just said, sort of job done. It's time for me to do something else, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think that's fair enough. Um, but it sounds like a little bit of a of a disappointing place to leave it. I think we should. Uh, I mean, I mean, when you, let me so, so let me ask you this. Um, th I mean, this is amazing. I was I was concerned we'd have so much to talk about, and we'll we'll come back. It's because uh, it's so important and. When you look back on it, and I'm holding up the book for you here on the screen, you know, it, even the cover is amazing. Do you look back? How do you feel when you look back on this book and, and, and ripped and torn and you, you see them all there together? What do you, what do you think as a 60-something-year-old man these days? What I think is I wish I'd bought a, type, a better typewriter ribbon. <laughs> and I, and I, for each, each issue, normally I'd buy a typewriter ribbon and I'd use it to write the first draft. I'd use it. To, so by the, by the time I got to the, the finished product, that ribbon was getting worn out. I'd never thought about buying it, buying a ribbon for the final run. And I look at it and I see these. And I can, that's what I can see that that type that typing is really getting indistinct. That ribbon could be should have been changed. Um, apart from that, I'm amazed at the vitality. Like things you read out, just sound like really lively to me. They still got still got life in them. And I feel now that where's that where's that gone? Yes, <laughs> um, but I know where it's gone. It's gone to my my life. Um, and I, was, I think as you're reading it out and you're just saying that and I'm looking at the pages, sometimes I open it up, and I get inspiration. I open it up. I don't read it A to Z. I open up a page. Oh wow! Did I say that? Oh, why did I say that? Oh my god! I like that record. Why am I slagging it off? Um, so I think it's great that it happened. I think it's full of life. 
and yeah, you use it as an inspirational loads and think, well, this is going and make amazing. And I did it, you know, look at it, this is great. My God, I did it as well. Um, so it was, it was a fantastic time to do it as uh, something I'm really proud of. I must just say, really proud of it. <clears throat> There's something else that is interesting is that the logo, I never had a set logo. Obviously, Jammy, you had a set logo. Every issue had a completely different logo. Is that yeah. a kind of anti anti uh, branding? I think it started off like that. Then I realised I was doing it, and I had to, then I thought I've got to change it. If you, I got stuck with changing it, I was aware of that. So people had to know to sort of look for the words ripped and torn. Yeah, we we went through a bunch of logos till we settled on 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 one for a time. And I, uh, but I, I was aware of that. And thanks for mentioning that. I I'm just going to wrap this up for now, saying that like it's ridiculous. It took us you know 45 plus years to ever actually. Mm-hmm talk to one another uh it's amazing how much we have in common at the end of it all as opposed to you know disputes about layout and so on well so we, we, we could we could sit and talk for another hour about layouts and typewriter ribbons and and uh, uh, editing decisions and, and interview people we interview we both interviewed and our thoughts on them I and and maybe maybe we will. I, so what we're going to do is we'll come back. Um, I've got a couple of other people I want to line up. We'll come back and talk about kill your pet puppy about what you did after ripped and torn. Yeah. Kill your pet puppy, your journeys. Uh, you know what you ended up doing later in life. And in the meantime, you know for 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 everybody who got some energy out of it, even people like me who felt very defensive uh, when 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 you know we realizing I wasn't part of your scene or whatever. You know it was so important and it looked so good in that print. And that it's great that people can get that. And, uh, you know, you left your mark, Tony. It was important. So cheers. Thank, yeah, thank you very much for saying that. Dig this podcast? You can support it through the ACAST supporter feature. Gift what you want, when you want. No long-term commitment. Just click the supporter link in the show notes on your phone or computer now. You can get the Ripped and Torn book through all the usual suspects. I'll put a link in the show notes. Have a look at your phone or your computer screen. Just scroll around and you should find them. I'll always have a link for the Best of Jamming book as well. I do believe both those books were printed or published in the UK by Omnibus Press. So thanks to Omnibus for continuing to support the fanzine culture and likewise i think uh, this particular podcast you know nominally the jamming fanzine podcast is just been uh, is is becoming a good uh, maybe a good repository for that fanzine culture particularly as it applied to punk and new wave though i really is my intent as we do this just once a month to cast the net much 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 further afield that said i think the next episode is going to have tom vague and Mike DeBole, who put together Toxic Graffiti. So those are two more prominent fanzines from those uh, important days. And uh, two more people that I'm not entirely sure I've ever actually had conversations with, though Lord knows we used to exchange correspondence, just as I did with Tony D. I was really, really, really glad to uh, sort of make peace with him, have a chat with him, realize how much we had in common. And, uh, you know, we touched on uh, the feud that we had. It did extend back and forth. I, I need to add, I do remember, it's funny, I have these long, long-term memories. I very much remember Tony D writing and that correspondence continuing up until and after Jamming 6 and him sort of saying, why do you have Pete Townsend now just answering? You know, he's always going to give one of those long pontificating interviews in the enemy. Um, and that's true, Pete. Pete Townsend would do that. I was certainly not going to turn down the opportunity to interview my 
idol, but I was kind of glad to see scrolling back through those rips and torns that actually secretly Tony D loved the Who. He just obviously felt alienated from them when punk happened, and who could blame him? I stood in the rain at Charlton Athletic Football Ground, the Valley, for hours and hours in 1976, so I could watch the Who from half a well, from the width of a football pitch away. Um, yeah, punk had to happen, so. Uh, Kudos to all of those who made it happen. You heard Mark Perry's name, Mark P's name mentioned there a couple of times with Sniffing Glue. There was a fair bit of overlap with Ripped and Torn. Sandy Robertson's name gets mentioned. Uh, uh, a fellow Glaswegian that came down to London just ahead of Tony D. And the other one being mentioned was Alex Ferguson, who went on to join Alternative TV, which was Mark Perry's band that he put his efforts into after packing in Sniffing Glue. Interestingly, Tony says, you know, he was fine with the Clash signings to CBS. Mark Perry famously said Punk died the day that uh, the Clash signed to CBS. So a couple of different points of view there. We are going to get back with Tony a few more episodes down the line to, to talk about what he did after Ripped and Torn because there's a, a lot of history there, a lot of interesting culture, some of it fanzine culture, some of it circus culture. So, you know, you want to subscribe. Uh, what else can I tell you? Theme music is by Noel Fletcher uh, with a bit of help from myself. Noel's my uh, teenage son heading off to college to do studio production later this year. And the logo is uh, courtesy of uh, Greg Morton over at Omnibus. Much appreciated. And we're doing this once a month. I have another podcast called One Step Beyond. Oddly enough or funnily enough or, or perhaps not entirely coincidentally enough, the last episode of that, which is a sort of outdoors travel lifestyle podcast, was called uh, What is Fell Running and Why is it Punk Rock? And it featured a member of the former Anarcho Peace Band, only former as in they broke up, not that they're not anarchists or pacifists till the end of their lives. Chomba Wamba. That's Boff Wally. All right, I've rabbited on enough. Bye. Do you want to buy a copy of Jamming?